introduction to the book of Acts. You, you know that uh, Luke-Acts is a combined work. Luke actually produced two. He produced the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. matter of fact, in the early church, often they were together as a combined work. And so when we look at the introduction to uh, the book of Acts, we'll also look at the introduction to the book of Luke. Uh, and then we have the ascension story. We'll kind of focus there. So we'll go through the first 11 verses today. Acts 1 opens, it's kind of like a hinge. It's the hinge between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, he's going to bring one story to a close. It's the story he told in, the, in the, the Gospel of Luke, but he touches on it just briefly. Uh, the story of Jesus of Nazareth. So he's actually going to repeat some of the things that he'd ended the Gospel of Luke with, but not exactly the same. He's going to accentuate things just a little bit different. He's going to launch into a new story, which is basically the story of the church, or really the story of the church, the first three uh, decades, from about the year 30 to about the year 60. Remember what the other term for this era is? Because of the people who were alive then? The apostles? So it's also known as the apostolic, an apostolic age. By around the year 60 to 65, pretty much all those who had known Jesus in the flesh their lives are coming to an end. Uh, 64, in particular, Peter and Paul both die. 62, James, the brother of the Lord, dies. So that generation is passing away. So the book of Acts is really the time frame when they're alive. And so a lot of these people play significant roles in the book of Acts. Peter will be significant. Paul will be significant. James will be significant. Uh, he begins by connecting the story uh, he has told in the gospel to the story he's now going to tell with Acts the Apostle. Uh, and he lets us know that they're actually very closely related, which is not a surprise to us, but that they're actually two parts of one story. So a lot of the themes that you see, for example, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit plays a big role. So what would you expect in Acts? The Holy Spirit plays a big role. So all the themes that you find in the gospel carry over into the book of Acts. He's going to do this by reaching back first in the opening verses back into the gospel. And he wants to lift up three things for us as he begins this new story. He wants to remind us of three things. And so just for a second, we want to look at these. Uh, first, he partially uh, repeats the introduction to the gospel. Uh, Luke is somewhat unusual in the fact that he has a formal four verse introduction. And he's the only gospel writer that tells us at the beginning why he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And it's just priceless. Now, the Gospel of John at the end will tell us why it's preserved, but Luke starts at the beginning. The book of Acts has the same thing. So he's going to remind us of this earlier work. Now, Acts 1-1 begins with these words. In my first book, Theophilus. We don't know if Theophilus is an actual person because anybody know Greek well enough to know what that means? God lover. Yeah, Theo, Theos, God. Uh, Philadelphia. City of brotherly love, person who loves God. So people did have those names, but it might be just, you know, that's kind of a title for the person. In his first book, he wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning. So he refers back to he had an earlier work. It's a reminder that uh, these are intended to be one unified work. And so whatever Luke said in the book of uh, the gospel, Luke also applies for the the book of Acts. So I want to look just real quick at the gospel itself. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events. Well, get your attention in that. 
many. Luke is not the first writer. Now, what gospel do we think, most scholars think today was the first? Mark. In the early church, they thought it was Matthew because it was the most Jewish. Now, we know that Luke has a copy of Mark in front of him because vast amounts of Mark are quoted word for word in Greek. And about the only way you can account, I mean paragraphs, the only way you can account for that is he's got one he's sort of copying over. There's a second uh, document he has, sometimes called the document Q. It's a document uh, that's for the German word quella, which just means source. Uh, there's large sections where Matthew and Luke seem to have a shared source, and it's word for word in Greek in both, so it's a document of some type, so they just call it Q. And the third thing Luke seems to have is he has other sources that we don't know what they are, except there's all that stuff in Luke that's unique. Uh, the prodigal son, only in Luke. Uh, Good Samaritan, only in Luke, says that sources. So, but the word many kind of raises the issue. Now, this is too early for the Gnostic Gospels. They don't come in until the second century. So Paul, uh, Luke's letting us know that when he's writing about the year 80, 85, several other people have done this. And so he's benefited from that. But why would you want to write a new gospel? Why? Got something else to say. Mark didn't say it right. Or, you know, Mark, did, Mark left out the good stuff. He le Mark left out the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, he left out a lot of wonderful things. So Luke is going to do that. Just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants to the word. Where does Luke say he got his info? Eyewitnesses. He's living at a time when the eyewitnesses are still alive. 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that, uh, that he knew many of the people who had seen the risen Lord, including 500 of them, at one place at one time. Now, Luke is probably at a time when most of the eyewitnesses, are, he's writing at a time when most of the eyewitnesses are gone. But their testimony goes on. That becomes important not just for Luke, it also becomes important for the book of Acts because one of the recent developments in scholarship is the growing awareness that even though Luke is thoroughly or acts as thoroughly Luke's production, he has sources that he's mined and worked, and they're there. Um, I, too, decided after investigating every, uh, everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account. It's not a history in the way that we would think of a history, but it's an orderly account. He wants to present in an orderly fashion uh, to you, most excellent Theophilus, for a particular reason, so that you may know the truth, concerning the things about which you have been instructed. So basically, he wants this guy to know that his faith is well-founded and to present to him in an orderly, organized... One of the, the things that was said about Mark in the early ages was that Mark was disorganized, and it was not an orderly account. So, um, as a matter of fact, there's some traditions about that. So Luke does this orderly account with that. It's from Luke that we get this idea of apostolic succession. You've heard of that, haven't you? Uh, it comes from several places, but primarily from Luke. There's two aspects. First of all, the tradition says that Jesus handed on to his disciples a certain amount of content, instructions. There's some tradition. Uh, so people like Peter and James and John and other will remember it and kind of hand it on to us so that we get that from them. <laughs> They, in turn, handed it on to others. The next generation, this continued down through the centuries. Uh, this is either known as the apostolic tradition or sometimes apostolic uh, teaching. 
that it goes back to the very beginning. Uh, do you remember the Apostle Paul? In 1 Corinthians, he tells us twice that he himself, although he's the first Christian writer, he inherited this. I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Or in another chapter, same book, he says, namely this, the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said. So this tradition kind of comes down. The other part of it is probably even more important to Luke. And that is Jesus handed on authority to his disciples, and this authority was passed down to later generations. When we look in just a few moments at the ascension story, the ascension story is essentially a story about Jesus giving authority to his disciples, not just content. He's giving them authority, and he's telling them that power will be coming. Do you remember when the power comes in, in Acts? Pentecost chapter 2. So the story sets up what we'll look at next week. The second way that he connects back to the gospel is he wants to give us a condensed version of the resurrection stories. Uh, he did that primarily in the gospel. But verse 3 says, After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. Only Luke puts a 40-day cap on this. And so today, remember the, the season following Lent is Easter. And what does East, how long does Easter last? 40 days. It's called the Great 40 Days. And it goes back to this tradition right here. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So when Jesus was alive, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. When Jesus was crucified, came back and was seen, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. Same message. Uh, in the gospel, Luke's going to devote an entire chapter to three stories. You remember the women at the tomb? Shared by other gospels. Remember the walk to Emmaus? Unique to Luke. And Jesus appears to all the disciples. And so he, he lays that out in great detail. Two things stand out, though, in the book of Acts that is not found in Luke. Uh, one is that he com Jesus commands the disciples, stay in Jerusalem. Do not go where? Galilee and the other Gospels Jesus says you know go ahead go to Galilee I'll meet you there and we have in the other Gospels resurrection stories where Jesus meets them probably for theological reasons Luke sort of edits that out he wants to focus on Jerusalem and so he limits himself to that and we get that command and we limit uh, Jesus's appearances to 40 days which gets real interesting we'll see in just a moment Unlike the other Gospels, first of all, he limits it to Jerusalem. Uh, he does not tell them to go to Galilee. Uh, he basically, uh, we don't have any of those stories. We do have, for example, do you remember the miraculous catch of fish? Which in the Gospel of John, John and Luke are very closely related. It looks like that Luke had an early copy of John as one of his resources. But in the Gospel of John, that, that miraculous catch of fish is a resurrection story in Galilee. Now, in Luke, it's not a resurrection story. It happens in Galilee, but the same story is in the ministry of Jesus before he dies. So it looks like Luke may have rearranged stuff a little bit there. Uh, he commands them to stay in Jerusalem, and in the same way as the book of Acts opened, where's the camera focus? Jerusalem. Where does it stay for several chapters? Jerusalem. Jerusalem for, for, uh, for Luke is ground zero. Gospel Luke 
Do you remember where the Gospel of Luke starts? Jerusalem at the temple with the baby Jesus being presented there. Uh, now, what is happening in other locations just does not seem to concern Luke. For example, Galilee. Um, we, we don't know anything about Galilee. Damascus. When Paul goes to Damascus, guess what? There's a group of Christians already there. How did they get there? We don't know. Luke doesn't care. Antioch, where Barnabas is from. And Paul's invited over. One of the most, uh, of the most uh, striking churches of the first century. How did he get started? We don't know. Luke didn't care. Rome. We found out in the book of Acts. When, when Paul arrives, we find actually, and actually from Paul's letter to Rome, Romans and some other places, there's a thriving Jewish community. We talked about this last week. It's in Rome because we know one of the emperors kicked them all out in the year, uh, in the year 50. Luke says nothing about that. Again, he's focused. Um, the other thing is that Jesus' ministry extended. It does not extend. Uh, well, his ministry does extend beyond his death, but it continues for just 40 days. Uh, do you remember in the Bible what 40 means? 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days and nights in the wilderness for Jesus being tempted by the devil. It, it's, uh, it's like the number seven. It's completion. It can be a symbolic number. So it can be literal or it can be uh, symbolic, just, just the right amount of time. Uh, Luke is real clear. He's the only author who does this. He wants the resurrection appearances of Jesus to be capped. And we want to cap them at 40 days. Can you think of a reason why you might want to do that? Yeah. One of the, okay. Well, you had imposters saying they saw him. Ah. Yeah, and that those traditions start growing. By the second century, most Gnostics are basing their revelations on the fact that they see that the risen Jesus appears to them and gives them this stuff, and it gives them really weird stuff like the God of the Old Testament and the God who created the universe is an evil God. It's the devil. And bizarre and strange stuff. Apparently within the first century, we have some of this going on. There are people making audacious claims. I saw Jesus, you know, 75 years later. I saw Jesus, and he's still around. And so Paul, uh, Luke wants to uh, cap that. Now that does present an interesting issue. Do you remember when Paul saw Jesus? Hint, it wasn't in 40 days. Two or three years later. So Paul actually gets caught by this. Uh, so clearly Jesus was being seen, even by the authentic uh, believers, way beyond this. Uh, even though it would exclude Paul. This allows Luke to do another thing. And again, this is Luke. Uh, it is very, very important to Luke that we close the door on the ministry of Jesus. Because what's next? The Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, we have different Gospels do this uh, in different kinds of ways. Uh, the church is going to be founded at Pentecost. It's going to be founded 50 days after Passover, which is what Pentecost means. It's going to be 10 days after the ascension or basically 10 days after Jesus and the, gospel and the book of Acts has left the scene. Um, now, what's interesting about that, do you remember the Gospel of Matthew? The Gospel of Matthew at the very end uh, in, uh, where Jesus, the final words Jesus says, Lo, I'm with you always. Okay. In Luke, Jesus is not with us always. Jesus leaves. And the Holy Spirit comes. Probably different ways of saying the same thing. 
there's a third way that Luke connects the book of Acts near the gospel. He tells the story of the ascension. Uh, by the way, the story of ascension is found where else? Remember? Gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke ends with Jesus ascending. The book of Acts begins with Jesus ascending. So it's one of those bridge things. The only other place that we have that kind of theology, we don't have a story, we have the, but the theology, remember the Gospel of John? Jesus comes from the Father. Jesus returns to the Father. But there's no actual story like we have here. The second account that's in Acts is not the same as the one in the Gospel. He has a different thing he's trying to accomplish. So it, it, it's nuanced. It's more developed. Um, the one in Luke is an ending. Jesus is essentially saying goodbye and his ministry is drawing to a close. The one in Acts is actually a beginning. And it's full of hinting about what is to come. It's full of hinting about chapter 2, the Pentecost story. So the, the, the ascension story is full of Jesus saying to them, you will receive power and kind of pointing forward. This is the ascension story, verses 6 through 11. This is as far as we'll get today. So when they had come together, the disciples, uh, at the end of the 40 days, they gathered together, they asked Jesus, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? Flag that. That's probably the most important question there is for Jews living in the first century. Uh, and that's the one that they want to deal with. He replied, mind your own beeswax. It's not for you to know times or periods. Remember earlier in the Gospel of Luke, people were wondering about when's the world going to come? You know, like the chicken little thing. When's the world going to come to an end? I hear people saying this, people saying that. What does Jesus say to them? It's not for you to know. The Father knows. That's not stuff you know. Uh, that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power. Greek word is dynamis, from which we get the word dynamite. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You ain't got it yet. You will get it. Uh, so we're not finished. And you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, which is ground zero for Luke, in all Judea, which is just the area right around Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a city in Judea. Samaria, that's interesting, because according to tradition, Samaria is not Jewish. They are... Um, sort of half Jewish. They have a different version of the Bible and their beliefs are substantially different. And then to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up. Remind you of a story in the Old Testament? Hold that thought. We'll get back to it. And a cloud took him out of sight. While he was going and they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. Uh, remember the two... Two men in white robes at the empty tomb. Okay. Presence of God. And they said, men of Galilee, what in the heck are you doing? Standing around with your thumb in your ear, looking up at the sky. This Jesus, who has been taken up from you to heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into the heaven. This is the belief in what? The, sec the second coming. He who has rose and who left will return again, just like we say in the Apostles' Creed. They then returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. It's, it's like, you know, 
quarter mile. It's not far at all. Uh, Sabbath day is journey, which is a restricted. To not break the Sabbath, you need to walk only. So it's just a short distance. So this story of the ascension opens with this key question. Is this the time when God will restore the kingdom of Israel? Think about it. Jesus has come. He's taught. He's lived. His ministry lasted probably around three years. He's crucified. He's been resurrected. Now he's leaving. And of all the questions you could ask, why would you ask this question? It is the question they want to ask. It's not a minor one. Uh, it's, it's the most important question you can ask. The Gospel of Luke opened with this question. We've got to go all the way back to the first part of Luke. It opened in a scene that promises this hope would be fulfilled. Remember, remember the story of Simeon? <coughs> Simeon and Anna, the prophet and the prophetess who are there when Jesus is presented at the temple at 12 days. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon who was looking forward to the consolation of Israel. Different language, same idea. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. The consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel, the Messiah would come. Guided by the Spirit, Spirit Simon uh, came into the temple. When the parents brought the child Jesus, Simeon stood up or took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant. The old King James was, now let your servant depart in peace. You remember that? According to your word. Why? My eyes have seen the consolation of Israel. My eyes have seen the Messiah. My eyes have seen your salvation. This is what the Jewish people have been waiting for for hundreds of years. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. And the glory of your people Israel. There it is. Now Jesus has been crucified. He's been raised. And the question is. What about everything we've ever hoped for? Now will we get everything we've ever hoped for? Uh, will the nation be restored to its former glory? Will the oppressors, the Romans be kicked out? Will the scattered tribes who are now over the four corners of the earth. Will they come home as scripture has promised? Will your kingdom come with all of its power and glory? What real world difference did Jesus' death and resurrection actually do? Did it do anything? Is that a fair question? That's a huge question. Okay. Um, has anything really changed? Now, what's really interesting about this passage is how the two angels handle their question. I think it's a fair question. If Jesus is leaving us, if he's done, so what? What does it mean for us today? Uh, and basically, the disciples are told, this is not what you're to be focused on. What do you mean it's not what we're to be focused on? What would we be focused on if we weren't focused on that? They're to wait. They're promised they will receive power. And they will be witnesses. Um, and then the the even if you look all the way forward to the closing scene of Acts, uh, which Paul finally arrives in Rome as a prisoner, uh, he addresses this question to the Jews in Rome. In Acts 28, the last chapter, nearly the last verse, we get this. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you. Paul addressing the Jews of Rome. Since it is for the sake, there it is, 
of the hope of Israel that I am bound with his chain. Acts closes with Paul in Rome in chains, not because he's a Christian, which is interesting, or because of Jesus, but because of the hope of the nation of Israel. So this plays a huge role. Here at the beginning, we're told, don't be concerned with that. Your attention is something else. <coughs> at the end, Paul is still concerned about that. For Luke, the entire ministry of Paul and the church is about the restoration of Israel. It is not something that just happened with the ministry of Jesus. Israel is not restored when Jesus dies and is resurrected. Jesus, it, it's restored when the disciples go to work and begin to move out into the world. And, you know, it'll happen. It'll, it, it's the beginning, but it's going to happen through their actions. The entire book of Acts is the narration of the fulfillment <coughs> of the hope of Israel. With, with Jesus' leaving after his death and resurrection, it doesn't end. It begins. And so now it's the task of the church to do that, this redemption of Israel and the fulfillment of God's promises. Uh, it will be fulfilled, and we end up that little promise. Jesus will return. Everything will happen, but not yet. Um, it's going to take some time, and it's going to take some work. The story of the ascension points, then, to what is to come. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's the story next week. Uh, the book of Acts is indeed the story of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting because you read Acts, you realize that one of the major characters is not human. Okay. One of the big characters that drives the story, story after story of story, is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, uh, if, if, you're, if you're imprisoned by Romans, who do you want to get you out of prison? The Holy Spirit. Because consistently that's happening. Um, he's at work in the disciples, I guess, Holy Spirit is actually feminine. She's at work in the disciples and the early church. Luke tells us five times in three verses. Do you think he's trying to make a point? Five times in three verses. This is a big issue in the book of Acts or chapter one. Jesus is gone. Deal with it. Jesus is gone. Get over it. That is not your focus as believers. He is no longer here with us. So we, we get these wordings as they were watching. He's lifted up. He's leaving you. The cloud took him out of their sight <coughs> while he was going and they were gazing up towards heaven. Jesus had been taken up from you into heaven. You saw him go into heaven. So the point is being made over and over and over. Jesus's ministry, his earthly ministry has come to an end. He is departing. He's leaving. And then the punchline, men of Galilee, what are you doing standing around? staring at the sky that's not what we're about as a church we don't simply look to where jesus went off to he's gone unlike matthew where he says i'm with you always luke wants to narrate that we're now moving into a different figure of the trinity we're moving into the holy spirit and this is going to be the book of acts was the story of jesus i mean book of luke the book of acts is the story of the Holy Spirit, God at work in both. Now, one of the questions some people like to ask, and you, you get a lot of ink spilled over this, is, well, what really happened? If you were there that day, what would you have seen? 
about three possibilities at least. Was it an external, factual, historical event? One that anyone would have seen. If you'd been there that day, would you literally have seen Jesus go into the clouds? Uh, did his physical body, we have in the Gospels uh, a lot of in, uh, scriptures which indicate that the body was physical. Remember that Thomas gets to put his hand in the wounds. Jesus eats fish. The physicality is there. Did Jesus' physical body literally go up into a physical heaven like a cosmic elevator? Is that now In the ancient world, people thought that way. But is that the point of the story? Is that what Luke is really trying to tell us? Uh, is that the real point of the story? Or, this is number two, is Luke narrating a type of visionary experience, one that only believers would have seen? In other words, instead of being something that happens out there, it's something that happens in here. It's an experience, and it's real, but somebody out there may not see it. You saw it, they may not have. There's evidence in the book of Acts that this is the way Luke understood it. Uh, in chapter 10, Peter gives a speech. He, ref he refers back to the, the appearances of the risen Jesus, and he has, says a very interesting thing. God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear. Well, how did Jesus appear? Not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses. What does that sound like? Sounds visionary. Not everybody would see it. Just selected people would see it. A third possibility is that the truth of the story is trying to communicate is not intended to be factual. It is theological. That the truth being communicated is, is a different kind of truth. Jesus is no longer with us in the flesh. That point's been made pretty clearly. He is with God. And in the ancient world, where was heaven? Up there. Uh, today, we may or may not uh, think in those terms. And our concern is with the work of God, not there, but the work of God here. So if you read the story for the theology of it, you would get something kind of like this. But whatever happens, it's real clear that, that Luke wants us to be thinking theologically. He also wants us to be thinking biblically. Uh, scholars point out that if you're a Jew and you know your Old Testament and you read the Ascension story, and another Bible story is going to immediately jump out. You've had time to think about it. Elijah rides the fiery chariot ascending to heaven. Now, what's interesting about that story is that's not the only parallel between the ascension story and Elijah. It's full of parallels. So we're going to look at that. It's narrated in such a way that, that this, this story is going to come to mind. Uh, there is a story of a prophet, Elijah, uh, it contains all the features of the ascension story. It's a prophet who's tied to the sending of the power of God. Now, Elijah's known as the mightiest of all the prophets. That's why when you have the, the Passover service, we have the empty spot for Elijah because Elijah will return before the Messiah comes. He then ascends to heaven, but even probably more importantly than that, it's not that he ascends to heaven. It's what Elijah leaves behind because the real power of the ascension story is not that Jesus is gone. He's gone. It's what Jesus leaves behind. And these two stories have the exact same thing. So we look at the story from Elijah from 2 Kings chapter 2. As they, this is Elijah's life is coming to an end. Uh, he's going to be replaced by, remember who it is? Elisha. You know, say those three times real fast, you get confused. As they continued walking and talking, 
a chariot of fire, horses of fire separated the two of them. In the ancient world, what was the most mightiest form of transportation you could think of? And the way they were used for one purpose, what was it? War. It's a war chariot. That's why in the Old Testament, often God's throne. Remember Ezekiel, the wheel in the middle of the wheel? God's throne is a war chariot. It's mobile, it's powerful, and it can travel wherever. A chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. Elijah ascended and a whirlwind. Remember the Exodus story, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, uh, lots of imagery, wind being imagery for God. Elisha then picked up the mantle, which would be what? Cloak, something like that. But we use the word mantle in a different way, don't we? If you put on, if you put on the mantle, what are you putting on? The spirit, the responsibility, the cloak, the authority. Think of it in this terms, authority. Elisha then picked up the mantle of Elijah with all of its authority, with all of its power. Now, Elijah is the prophet who could do everything. Raise the dead. Heal the sick. Cure the lame. Stories of Elijah doing all those kinds of things. Uh, he was the only prophet who could do that. Now, Elisha's got his, his mantle. What do you think from now on Elisha's going to be doing? Raising the dead. Curing the sick. Curing the lame. He's going to have all the power and authority. Uh, so he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen up from him. He struck the water and the water parted. Was it remind you of? The Red Sea or with, a, with a, uh, Joshua? The Jordan River parting. Obviously, he, has, he now has the power of God. In the same way, the, the mantle is now passed from Jesus. He's gone. Luke wants us to be real clear on that. To the next generation with all of its power. The power of the Holy Spirit that was with Jesus is, will now be with them. Uh, in Luke, Jesus performs miracles. What do you think the disciples are going to be doing in Acts? They will now perform the same miracles. Jesus healed the sick. Chapter 3, what is it that Peter and John do? Heal the sick. Jesus cured the lame. They'll cure the lame. Jesus raised the dead. We have stories in the book of Acts of the disciples raising the dead. Now, sometimes it's the opposite. Paul puts somebody to sleep and he falls out of a third-story window. But then what happens in the story? He's raised, okay? Theologically, this is why Luke has included the story at this point. It's part of the, the story of the church. The mantle has now been passed to a new generation. Uh, they now have the mission. They now have the authority. Acts is going to be the story of that generation and the things they do. And again, it's not everybody. We've got 12 apostles. How many are in uh, the book of Acts? There's functionally two, Peter and John. Uh, we have a, Jane, we have a couple of them. But most of them are never even mentioned. So again, he's, he's real focused. The key to unlocking Acts, this was last week, but we didn't get to it, so I put it back in, is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, this is the, th the, the thesis sentence of this book, and it's actually the outline of the book. Uh, and it's part of the, the Ascension story. It, it's going to give us everything we need in terms of structure for the book. Cha uh, chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power. What chapter? We're in chapter one, but what chapter do they receive power? Two, the Pentecost story. 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's the Pentecost story. And you will be my witnesses, okay? In Jerusalem, all Judea, just imagine expanding circles. Samaria, which, which, uh, which believer is this, does that, remember? Philip? Philip goes to Samaria first. To the ends of the earth. Where is Paul at the end of the book of Acts? Rome. And uh, according to Romans, he's hoping to go to Spain, to Gaul. Um, Spain, France area up there. They will receive power in chapter 2. Be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, chapters 2 through 7. So for the next two or three weeks, all of our stories are in Jerusalem. We'll then expand to Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12. In the middle of this, we're going to introduce this really interesting character, Paul of Tarsus. Uh, and then we're going to go to the ends of the earth, courtesy of Paul and Barnabas and others. Chapters 13 to 28. Just like rings on a tree, expanding circles, moving out. And the ground zero, the center of the universe is Jerusalem. Still is for many people. So the story of the ascension ends just as the empty tomb story did in Luke. You've got uh, a question being answered asked by some angels thought it'd be interesting to see how the two combined remember the empty tomb they're all standing at the empty tomb going where's jesus remember what the angel said why do you seek the living among the dead he is not here he is risen now in the book of acts at the ascension story very similar why are you just standing around looking at where he was because that's not we're focusing on you're focusing in the wrong place. Jesus has given you a task to do. Uh, your work is not in heaven, not yet. It's here on earth. Get busy. But are they ready? Are they ready to get busy? No. Everything goes on hold for 10 days. Uh, Luke's going to tell this story. But first, we've got to wait 10 more days after Jesus is gone until they receive the power the, the, the Pentecost story they get. So we'll skip the rest of one, and next week we land chapter two. So if you're reading ahead, Acts 2, Pentecost story, two parts. There's the part that Peter does, well, the, the part of the event, and the book of Acts remembers the heavy lifting is always done in the speech that follows the event. So Peter's speech, read carefully. Mean.